0: In the passage that we're about to read, James relates our external condition to our internal condition, and by doing that, he diagnoses our needs. He exposes what we really need. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God." Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together.
1: Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can gather together this morning, and thank You that we have opportunity to respond To your mercy and your grace shown to us in Jesus um, with these gifts and these ties and these offerings, we pray that you would use these in order that your kingdom would be revealed, in order that the wonderful good news of the gospel would be proclaimed here and to all the nations. Father, we prepare now to come and sit beneath your word and we confess that we are are broken. We are broken, fallen creatures before our Creator. Uh, In many ways, uh, this past week and even this very morning, we have shown our brokenness in our sin. We pray, though, that as we sit beneath Your Word, we would hear Your voice, the voice we have often sought to silence, the voice we have often Run from, we pray that this morning we would hear your voice, that you would give to us a humble confidence before your word, humble to know that we are your broken creation, hearing the voice of our Creator, but also confidence confidence in knowing that the one who is described to us in the very beginning of Genesis, when you open your mouth to speak, you cause things. To exist that did not exist before. When your Son walked this earth, he spoke, and the blind were made to see, and the deaf were made to hear. He spoke, and the lame were made to walk. He spoke, and the dead were raised from the grave. Father, we pray that we would have that confidence to hear your voice like that this morning, knowing that you have the power to raise the dead, you have the power to transform us by your voice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Children are now dismissed to Children's Church, ages 3 to 6. You can make your way to the back of the sanctuary. Right now we are in a little series um, on relationships. And if you happened to be here last week, it might feel as though we've... Been to the mountaintop, but now we've descended into the shadowy depths. Uh, Because last week we were in John chapter 17 and we considered there the wonderful, glorious, inspiring beauty of God, a God who moves outward in his love, right? But we also saw last week that if we drink deeply of his love for us, right? If we understand that God the Father loves us even as He loves His own Son, Jesus, then we are empowered and able and we can mirror His outward-moving love in our relationships. But this morning, so that was the mountaintops, right? This morning, we're in James chapter 4. And here, we're talking about fights and conflict and Confrontation, right, from beautiful visions and, you know, imaginative wonder to earthy, messy, painful, hurtful conflict. And today I want you to see that we are we are reminded of the immense practicality of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel comes and addresses us in the reality of our brokenness. So I'm going to start a little differently uh, than usual this morning, and I, I want to come to James's uh, defense a little bit, um, because, I mean, when when we read that passage earlier, I, I know it was a little bit ago, but when we read that passage, and James starts in verse one by saying, what causes quarrels and fights among you, right? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It, it feels like, you know, kind of like, whoa, <laughs> Somebody's a little cranky uh, here, you know, I mean, need a Snickers bar, James? Um, If you don't get that, you need to watch more TV. Um, But here's I want to defend him by by saying this. We are really jumping into the middle of a conversation here in chapter four, verse one. A couple of verses earlier at the end of chapter three, James had been contrasting Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, right? So in in chapter 3, verse 16, James wrote that worldly wisdom creates disorder and every evil practice. And in contrast, in chapter 3, verse 18, which is the last verse of chapter 3, the verse that comes just before our passage, James wrote that godly wisdom, on the other hand, leads to a harvest of righteousness, sown in peace By those who make peace. Now, here's why this is important and why I'm taking the time to say all of this up front this morning. James is ultra concerned throughout this letter about the quality of community among those who claim to believe the gospel. His letter is immensely practical. He's writing to say, this is what the gospel should look like when it is lived out, right? And James understands, as someone else put it, you can't and won't change. You can't and won't become something different and be transformed and changed unless you are deeply involved in a peacemaking community. See, God designed you and I to flourish inside peacemaking communities. He made us to flourish interdependently. In relationships, right? To grow and change and mature and become who he made us to be inside communities of peace. Now, I doubt that I need to say much more about why this should be practical and and very important for us this morning. For some of you, you have grown stagnant in your walk with Jesus because of this. Because you have been immersed in a community of conflict and strife instead of a community of peace. We need to be more and more becoming a peacemaking community if any of us individually are to grow and mature and flourish. See, we need each other for this. And together we need to see that we are becoming a community that is moving from war. peace, We need to see how we can together as a community cultivate a culture of grace. You need this. I need this. Our community needs this. Memphis needs this. The world needs this, right? We need to see how the beauty of the gospel addresses us in the reality of our brokenness and has the power to transform us and our community. So here's where we're headed this morning with James's letter, this portion of his letter. First, I want us to see see what James has to say about the source of our conflict. And then second, I want us to listen to him tell us what, what must be done in order for us to experience change. And then finally, I want us to hear James tell us how to do what must be done. So I'll, I'll remind you as we go. First, the source of our conflict. I think it's pretty clear in these opening verses of chapter four that James is diagnosing our conflict with one another as symptomatic. Right. In other words, the conflict on the surface of our lives. Right. It is, it is driven, James is saying, by something underneath right? a deep, right, internal conflict battle of desires, James is saying. One author writes this, it's tempting to look at the trouble in our relationships and locate the problem outside ourselves. And it's true. The other person is inherently weak and sinful. Unfortunately, so are we. James 4.1 with the rest of scripture reminds us that our real problem is inside us. We have made ourselves ultimate and God secondary. And that's right, isn't it? I mean, you think about the most recent conflict you have been in, right? And and the last place you were looking in that conflict is inside of yourself. That's what I was doing in my last conflict, right? We're so convinced that the problem is out there. It must be. With that person, because we reason if that person had not interfered, if that person had not gotten in the way, if that person had not done this or that, everything would have been great. Right. And it makes sense to us that the problem must be outside of us. But James is saying. Slow down, let's slow down and follow the symptoms of our conflict. And when we do, we'll find that the actual source of our conflict is internal inside us. Because James is saying it is in our deep-seated, self-centered desires. That's the source of our conflict. What causes these quarrels and fights, James asks. And then the end of verse 2, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That word for passions is where we get our word for hedonism. He said our deep-seated, self-centered desire to live for our own pleasure. So let's go a little bit further with this. James writes in verse 2, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Slow down and think about this diagnosis. Right Here's what James is saying. When someone gets in the way of my desire for comfort, for convenience, for control, when someone comes and interferes with my agenda, it's game on, right? If someone keeps me from my desires, if someone interferes with what I feel I have to have in order to be happy, then the confrontation just erupts, right? If someone takes away my perceived control, of a situation or an environment, then the conflict rises to the surface. If my convenience is denied, if my timetable is delayed, if your desires are shown preference over my desires, that's all it takes, a spark to get it going, right? In that moment... When the conflict rises to the surface, we're so convinced that the source of trouble is outside of us. It's his fault. It's her fault. If you knew my wife, if you knew my husband, it's my boss, it's my neighbor, it's my coworker. on and on we could go. James is saying, dig a little deeper. Those are the symptoms. The real problem is inside of us. Several years ago, we planted... little garden in our backyard, and we planted beans and corn and squash and zucchini and tomatoes and carrots, and I loved it, and I loved checking on that garden with my kids. It was fun to watch it grow with them, right? And when the vegetables started to grow, the kids could see it, and they could see that this, this little thing is going to one day become a bean, and this tomato is going to ripen one day, and we'll be able to eat it, and the zucchini will get larger and all that kind of stuff. Eventually, it's going to get bigger, and we'll be able to eat it. But the carrots in our garden were different, right? My kids were awfully young at, at this time. Uh, in fact, we only had two, and they were four and two. And they were very suspicious of m- me telling them that that plant was actually a carrot, because all they could see was this these green leaves at the surface, right? And, and I was telling they couldn't see anything that looked like a carrot on the surface, right? So, so I knew, and I would tell them, "Trust me, I know there are carrots underneath there, right? Because the green leaves on the surface are proof of that. That underneath there are carrots, and the conflict in our lives." Listen, even for those of us who absolutely hate and are afraid of conflict and try to deal with everything passive, passive aggressively to just try and fly under the radar. The conflict in all of our lives, it is proof at the surface. It is proof of deep seated, self-centered desires churning underneath the surface and in our hearts. And here's the thing. All this stuff is really it's very interesting to talk about. Right, But do you realize how terrifying this is to actually apply to, to apply to your life? Listen, to move from the self-justification of our anger or our hurt or, or the offense that we have taken, to move from that self-justification to honest, open self-examination is a gigantic, terrifying leap. right? It's a leap. ...into a terrifying, right, undefensible vulnerability. Because it's to admit the real problem is not you. And the real problem is not this environment. And the real problem is not my past. And it's not this circumstance. It is my deep, dark, right, deep-centered, self-centered desires that are the problem... But listen, even this is just the beginning of the terror, right? Because we're talking about desires here, right? This, it, it even feels unfair in a sense to us. How much control do you really feel that you have over your desires? Do you feel very confident, confident that you could, ch- you could just change, not just your behavior, but just change so simply and easily your desires, It is terrifying. But second, James tells us what must be done in order for us to experience change. And here I want to skip over a few verses in our passage and really look at verses 7 through 10 mainly. This is where James is telling us what must be done to experience change. See, in these verses, James, he fires off in rapid succession 10 imperatives or commands. He says do this, do that, be this, be that. Scholar George Stulock, he writes about these verses. This is what James ten imperatives provide. A forceful call to repentance as the requisite to love and peace in the community. James is saying to change not just your behavior, but our deep seated self centered desires and really experience change, we must repent right to have the only kind of community that you can flourish in and to have the only kind of community that can come alongside you and heal you, we must repent now, I know that the word repent has got a lot of cultural baggage and maybe some Personal baggage for you, right? But I want you to do your best to hear James out. Here, we don't have the time to look at verses seven through ten and these ten commands in in any great detail. But I think if you if you look, you'll realize that James is saying repentance involves the whole person. For example, purify your hearts. He writes, "You double-minded." <laughs> There's something of a psychological component to repentance. But then he writes, be wretched, mourn and weep. There's also an emotional component to repentance. But then submit, resist, draw near, cleanse your hands. There's also a volitional, right, an act of the will component to repentance. Now, here's why I think it's genius for James to do this because most of us tend to think about and locate repentance in just one of these areas and it has led to some horrible dysfunction in our lives right some think that repentance is mainly psychological kind of a turning in on myself and self-examination. If I can know my story with all its baggage and reinterpret, reinterpret it enough, I will finally find freedom in my life and really change. And others of us think that repentance is primarily emotional. It's about how we feel. If I could just feel guilty enough, I could change this time. If I could just feel sad enough, wrong enough, sorry enough, if I could just feel sincere enough about my desire to change. Others of us think that repentance is primarily volitional. It's what we do, and it's all about what I stop doing and what I start doing. So it's an exchange of wrong things for right things. And I wish we had more time to deal with this this morning, but to try to locate repentance in just one of these areas has created a lot of unbalanced dysfunction in our lives. Because, see, to keep repentance in just one of these areas is actually a way for us to keep from repenting in the entirety of our lives. It's it's actually a means of avoiding repentance. A repentance that involves the whole self. You know, I kind of have to bite my tongue here because we need to keep this moving. But try to think about how you might be avoiding repentance by limiting repentance. And why it might be the reason you find yourself so stuck and not really experiencing any lasting change in your life. We have to go on See, to find out what repentance really is and why it has to involve the whole person. We have to figure out what the essence of sin really is. And I think James is giving us a clue at the end of verse two and verse three. Didn't it feel weird when we read that earlier? Like all of a sudden, James is talking about prayer, right? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Just real briefly, think with me. Why would someone, why do you and I, right? Why do we not pray at times? Isn't it because we aren't really convinced that God loves us and will graciously only and always give us what is best for us? So we don't pray. We take matters into our own hands because we think we know what's best for us. In other words, we long to play God with our own lives. But what is James talking about when he writes that we ask wrongly to spend on our passions? He's saying we go to God, but not to get God, just to get his stuff, just to get his gifts and his blessings. Let me say that another way. We go asking that God would give us our idols. We go asking God to give us the things we really love and worship in life. See, we want God to be our butler, but we don't want God to be God. We want to call the shots. Thank you very much. And here's what we're discovering. The essence of our sin is a deep-seated, self-centered desire to dethrone God. And be our own lords and saviors. See, only when you realize that that is the essence of sin will you realize that repentance has to involve the whole self, the entirety of who you are. But here's the other thing. When you realize this, you'll realize that this deep-seated, self-centered desire to be your own lord and savior, it's not just been underneath the wrong things of your life. It's also been underneath much of the good things in your life, right? The, the way we, now God must owe me. Look at how much I've sacrificed, right? You got, God needs to bless me. Look at how good I've been, right? Realize this, and we'll realize that even much of our repenting needs to be repented of because we've been trying to avoid giving up our whole lives. It terrifies us the thought of taking our hands off of our lives. I've been reading through some of George Whitfield's sermons lately. He was a major preacher in Great Awakening Revival. And in one of his sermons, he said this. I do not know what you may think, but I can say that I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach to you or to any others, but I sin. I can do nothing without sin. And as one expresses one expresseth, it's hard to read this language. Anyway, my repentance wants to be repented of. And my tears to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. Our best duties are as so many splendid sins. Before you can speak peace into your heart, you must not only be made, this, be made sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your Righteousness. Of all your duties and performances. Now, some of you probably think that this sounds really strange, maybe. Um, Maybe this sounds way too extreme to you. You know, repenting of sin, okay, but repenting of righteousness, repenting of repentance, that's a little over the top obsessive, is what it feels like. But let me tell you this every major world religion in some way talks about repentance of sin regardless of how it might be defined. But listen, only Christianity says you must repent of your righteousness too. And let me tell you this, because of that, right, no other religion can set you as free as Christianity or change you as deeply as Christianity. You think about it, if I stop defining myself by my performance, whether it is bad or good, I become free. I become free of all needs to justify myself. Right. Free from the danger of criticism and free from the danger of compliment. On the one hand, criticism can't crush me. And on the other hand, compliments, they can't puff me up and make me arrogant. But listen, it will also change me deeply because Christianity isn't just concerned with what you do. It is concerned with who you are. Christianity is about changing our desires, right? The very reasons we ever do anything good or bad. I'm going to stop right there because I need to save some for the last point. All right, finally, how to do what must be done. See, James is saying our problem is internal. It's in our desires. And the only way to experience change in our desires is for our whole selves to turn from both sin and righteousness to Jesus. Okay. So if you're hearing that, you should be asking, great. But how in the world do we do that? Right? How can we do what must be done? The only way... To turn the entire person, to turn so significantly that even our desires are changed is to find a new desire, right? To find a desire more lovely, more beautiful, more attractive than our deep-seated self-centered desires, Thomas Chalmers, he was a Scottish uh, preacher in the early 19th century. And in one of his most famous sermons, he talked about how exposing how exposing the danger and emptiness and foolishness of sin is not enough to lead anyone to change. Right. He was saying no matter how vivid, no matter how descriptive, no matter how articulate or forcible or reasoned the approach, simply to expose the emptiness of sin is not enough to move someone to change. Notice in James 4, 4, where James writes, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Back to Chalmers sermon. Chalmers in his sermon wrote the love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity. He's referencing, of course, this passage. And that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom. Same point, right? And then he writes, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Here, exposing the emptiness and foolishness of our deep-seated, self-centered desires will never be enough to change us but give us a new affection, right? An affection more beautiful, more lovely, more attractive, and it will expel the old desires. It will drive them out, is what he's saying. And listen, there are two things in this passage that James is lifting up before our eyes in these verses as more beautiful. You might have missed them on the first reading. First, James is revealing to us and reminding us of God's beautiful kingdom, right? And the beauty of his kingdom is its upside down nature. Verse six, but he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, Right, he flips everything upside down, and the self-assured and the arrogantly confident, and those full of themselves, and the self-justifiers, he is saying, they're out. And the humble, the reliant, the dependent, the lowly are in. Verse ten, he strikes the chord of this beautiful upside-down kingdom again. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The poor, cast aside, humble Cinder Girl, right. She will be exalted and become the Cinderella in his kingdom. Right? This beautiful kingdom is what we have been longing for all our lives. And we have been trying to express that longing in all our art, in all our books, in all our stories that we tell. One of my favorite psalms that I think captures the beauty of this upside down kingdom is Psalm 113. It says that God seated on high, he looks down and he raises the poor from the dust And lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. With the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. The needy, the lowly, the humble, they become princes and princesses in his kingdom, he is saying. Don't waste your effort pining after what glitters but isn't gold, James is saying. Humble yourself and do whatever you have to. To get inside this beautiful kingdom. This is the beauty your heart has always been longing for. But second, James in these verses, he's also lifting us, lifting our eyes to see the beautiful groom. Okay, almost all the translators, including the one we used this morning, kind of botched the beginning of verse 4. But but it's understandable because it sounds kind of strange. James is writing to men and women, but in the original Greek, he didn't write "you adulterous people." He wrote "you adulteresses," right? You you see, the strange is why would James refer to a group of men and women, right, with the feminine adulteress? And the reason is that James is tapping into a theme. That runs throughout the entire Bible. He He's reminding us of this great theme. That God in his mercy and grace. He chose to wed himself. He chose to give himself. To an unfaithful promiscuous bride. In order to redeem her. Who is that unfaithful promiscuous bride? It's us. It's the church. Look the book of Hosea has to be among the strangest in the Bible, if you've never read it. The book of Hosea begins with God telling this prophet Hosea to go and marry a woman named Gomer. That's not all that strange, except for the fact that Gomer was a prostitute. Right? And strange because God wasn't saying, Gomer's put all that behind her now. God was saying, go marry this woman, and she's going to betray you. And she's gonna leave you for for her other lovers. Hosea obeyed. And guess what? Gomer had children, but they weren't Hosea's. And eventually she left Hosea altogether and moved in with one of her lovers. If I were Hosea's friend, I would say, You're done, cut her off, it's over. You know, I, t- I tried to tell you the first time when you said God was telling me to marry this woman, I tried to tell you no. You know, if you go get her, she's going to do it to you again. But that's not what God told Hosea. God told Hosea, go get her. This is, these are his actual words. Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Right? That's the word in our passage, adulteress. I'm telling you, it's strange, and I I wouldn't be surprised if you you think I'm making this up, but just go read Hosea chapters one through three. It's it's all there. I'm I'm not um this is not hyperbole, right? But back to the story here. Hosea obeyed and he went to get his wife. But listen to this: to add insult to his injury, it, it was extremely costly for him because Hosea had to empty his pockets. And pay to get his wife back. Now why would God do something so strange as this and scandalous? It's because God was using Hosea as a living parable for his people. He was saying to his people, this is a picture of my love for my people. I love them so deeply So profoundly, so thoroughly, so completely, that even though they quit on me, I will never, ever quit on them. I will go and get her back. The actual words were these. God told Hosea, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. I hope you can see the beauty. Centuries later, God would empty his pockets. He would give up his treasured possession. He would pay the ultimate price for his people. And the price was his own son given for you and me. You see the wonder and the beauty of this groom, Jesus, and his upside down kingdom. It's that vision, a desire. Right. For that beautiful groom and his kingdom that will begin to work on us and in us and expel our deep seated self-centered desires. The essence of sin was our desire to substitute ourselves for God. The essence of God's salvation was his substitution of himself for us upon the cross. One little. Negative kind of story to end, but I, I think it'll, it'll help me drive this point home. Pastor once told the story about a man he canceled and or counseled and canceled, counseled after you're over. Um, sometimes you want to do that, um, but anyway, he he counseled this man after his marriage had fallen apart because of an affair that he had, and his man had carried on with this affair for the span of several years. And, um, and the, so the pastor asked him in one of these sessions, how, how did you go th- through it for so long? And uh, this man explained that his wife would go away on the weekends to care for her elderly mother. And on those weekends, the man explained his mit- mistress would come over. And then he said this, the first thing he and his mistress would do would be to go through the entire house, And turn away every picture of his wife. The pictures on the wall, right? They would be turned around to face the wall. The pictures on the end tables and the coffee tables, they would be laid flat. The pictures on the refrigerator, they would be turned around and stuck back up so that you couldn't see the picture of his wife. He said something like this. He just could not go through it. With those pictures of his wife smiling and beaming in love for him. What is going to expel our deep-seated, self-centered desires? You and I must see this beauty. Our groom, Jesus, smiling and beaming in love over us. He so loved you. That it cost him his life to buy you back. And we have to let that love work on us. Sink deep in his heart. His sacrifice for us. We have to let that give us our identity. And see that his blood washes even our righteousness. And even our repentance. And when that happens we can finally let go of self-justification. We can finally take our hands off of our lives and put our whole self into His loving arms. And when we do that, James is saying, it will begin to heal us. It will begin to change our desires and we will begin to become a culture of grace and a peacemaking community. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for... Speaking to us, we thank you for every page of your word which points us to Jesus, which drives us to see our beautiful groom. Father, forgive us for the many times and many ways we have turned away from his smile, away from him beaming in love over us. We pray that his smile, his love for us, his sacrifice for us, we pray that it would heal our hearts, that it would heal us deep inside and that our desires would begin to change and that we would become a peacemaking community, a culture of grace. We pray that you would do this certainly for our good, that we would grow up, that we would mature and that we would flourish. But we pray ultimately that you would do this work in us by your gospel for the praise the glory of your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.